I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 14 this evening. John chapter 14. I want to get around to talking about the name of Jesus, but I want to uh, set a background first before we get into uh, some of the things that we want to say. John chapter 14 verse 1 uh, tells us about, it's John's account of what happened on the, the, uh, at the Last Supper. Um, I say this a lot, but it, it it helps me understand things to know this. And so if there's anybody that hadn't heard this, I want to make sure to give them the same opportunity to um, uh, for that greater understanding. John's gospel was written about 60 years after Jesus was raised from the dead, maybe 65. John is an old man approaching um, 100 years old, probably in his early to mid-90s at the time that this book is written. And as such... He certainly knows as well as the rest of the church of that day um, about Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, and Luke's gospel. So when John is impressed by the Holy Ghost to write another gospel, give us another account, I always look at at things from a standpoint of, now, why would God want to do that? And whether it's the only reason or not, I, I can't say. But one thing that we know about John's gospel is that John seems to fill in the blanks on a lot of things that the other gospel writers didn't tell us. These um, chapters, John 14, well, really through the end of, uh, uh, end of the, the gospel that he wrote, does a, a major part, or is a major part of that, fill in the blanks, I mean. And, uh, and he tells us some things that um, coming to the end of his life, the Holy Ghost must really want us to know. Because without John writing, we would know some of the things that he tells us. As I said, they're not in the other gospel accounts. Well, Jesus is meeting with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed at the Last Supper. And he said a lot of things to them. And some of the things that uh, were said to them and some of their responses give us an insight into where the apostles were and and, uh, what the disciples believed and so forth. Let's just start in verse 1. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, it's, um, I start to say it's unfortunate that the word mansions, this Greek word is uh, translated mansions, but I don't really know that there's a whole lot better word to use. It means just dwelling place. But so much of the church, I know I was taught this as a little boy in, in uh, Southern Baptist Sunday school, that uh, when Jesus talked about many mansions in his father's house, and then said, I go to prepare a place for you. We were taught, as kids, we were taught that that means that Jesus is in heaven building houses. After all, he was a carpenter, you know. But he's in heaven building houses, and as soon as he gets all those houses built, he'll come back for us. And folks, that's just so ignorant, it's not even funny. But that's what we thought, that's what we believed as a result of the teaching that we got. But I want you to notice what he said. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. That just means dwelling places. In other words, there's room for everybody in heaven. And if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare that place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I want you to notice what he said. He said that where I am, you may be also. Not where I'm going. He wants... His disciples, and and by extension, you and me as the church. He wants the church to be where he is. Now, what is he talking about? The place that he's preparing for us is a place in him. It's a place of righteousness. 
It's that which belongs to us when we make Jesus the Lord of our lives and receive eternal life for ourselves. Jesus is very simply saying, I'm going to make the way for you to go into the Father's presence. I'm going to break the barriers and provide a position of right standing for you. And then I'm going to come back to see you again, which he did after the resurrection. So that where I am, you may be also. Now, where was Jesus when he was here on the earth? When he spoke these words, where was Jesus? I'm talking about spiritually. Where was he? He was one with the Father. Remember every time he said the Father and I are one or said something to that effect, the Jews, the religious people that were around him were wanting to kill him every time. Because that was something that they just could not accept. It was, there's nothing in Judaism, the law of Moses or any other of the prophets or anything, that gave them a, an, uh, the idea to any great degree that they would have a place where they could be one with God. Now, Ezekiel told them that, prophesied, about what the new birth would do. I'll take the stony heart out of you and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put a new spirit in you and then I'll put my spirit in you, Jesus, uh, Ezekiel the prophet said, at the direction of the Holy Ghost. So there were some uh, isolated scriptures that gave hints about these things that Jesus is talking about, but nothing that they, they the Jews, majored on to any great degree that kept them from thinking it was blasphemy for Jesus to say that he was one with his father. Now, when Jesus continues, we're going to see uh, a little bit about the disciples' attitude and, and so forth. Verse 3 again, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also, and where I go you know, and the way you know. But Thomas said unto him, Lord, we know not whether thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus answering said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Again, he's talking about a place of righteousness, a place of right standing before God. He's saying you'll know him. There's no way they could know him prior to Jesus making a way for us to be born again. But when he says, and you know him, relative to the work that Jesus is going to do, the sacrifice that he makes on the cross, he's telling them very much, point blank, He's telling them, the Holy Spirit will live in you. You'll know him from the inside. Philip speaks up, and he said unto Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it'll suffice us. It'll satisfy us if you show us the Father. And Jesus answered and said unto him, have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Now, I'm going to turn back to Matthew chapter 16. Here's a, um, an event that took place that I assume you're familiar with, but I want you to, show, I want you to see something. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that you're John the Baptist. Remember, he had been beheaded by Herod. And some say you're Elijah, the prophet, who's been dead for hundreds of years. And others say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And he said unto them, but whom say you that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my father, which is in heaven. 
And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, now the rock doesn't have anything to do with Peter, it's the revelation of who Jesus is, the fact that he's the Messiah, the Son of God. And upon this rock, the rock of the knowledge of who Jesus is, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Another translation says that I, I particularly like, it says the gates of hell shall not be able to withstand or, or uh, withstand the power of the church. The gates of hell won't be able to hold us back. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now let me ask you a question. At this point in time when uh, in Jesus' earthly ministry, he's already commissioned the twelve. Gave them power to cast out devils and to heal every sickness and every disease among the people. He's already commissioned the 70 and gave them the same power to the degree that they came back and marveled, saying, even the devils are subject unto us in your name. Well, Jesus had not specifically said anything to them about power or authority over the devil. But they found, the disciples found, or the 70 found, that when they used the name of Jesus, even evil spirits were subject to them. Remember, Jesus said, don't get happy about that. Be glad rather that your names are written in heaven. In other words, he said, focus on the relationship, not the fact that the devil will obey you in my, in my name. Now, at this point, I think there's some questions that we have to ask ourselves. First of all, what is Jesus asking his disciples about who do you say I am for? Why is he asking them that question? I always had the idea that when he gave them the power over sickness and disease and sent them out two by two before his face in every uh, city or town that he was going to come to, I always just assumed that the disciples were preaching about Jesus. I just assumed the disciples were telling everybody that the Messiah has come, the miracle worker is, is here, and he's coming to, you, to your town very soon and shortly thereafter. So get ready for him. Get ready to see the power of God on display. But if that were the case, then why is Peter saying thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, instead of saying something like, well, Jesus, what are you asking us that question for? Of course, we believe you're the Messiah. That's who you told us to tell everybody you were. That would have been the response if they were out preaching Jesus, would it? But instead, Peter identifies who he believes Jesus is. And Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you. Well, that would include him too then, wouldn't it? Jesus was flesh and blood at that point in time, operating here on the earth as a man, anointed by the Holy Ghost. But Jesus says, flesh and blood is not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And he said, he talked about the blessing that is associated with that and the knowledge of who he is and the work that he's come to, to accomplish, has accomplished at this point, brings blessing to everybody that accepts him as Lord and Savior. But now let's keep reading and see what else happens. Verse 23. I'm sorry, it's verse 21. From that time forth, I, I should have, shouldn't have skipped over this, but verse 20 tells us that he told them, don't tell anybody who I am. Now that's a strange thing for a person that's wanting people to know who God is and wants the greatest measure of success in his ministry that you could possibly have, which I believe Jesus was successful in. Why would he tell the disciples, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ? See, in my thinking, 
or for a, a long time, my thinking about Jesus' relationship with his disciples and the work that he gave them to do is all wrong. He wasn't trying to make people think that he was the Messiah. He, his purpose was to reveal the Father. So it wasn't the, the important thing. The issue at hand wasn't to tell everybody that Jesus was the Christ. It wasn't even for Jesus to identify who he was to everybody. But instead, he sent the disciples and the 70 out to preach the kingdom of God. He said, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils, raise the lepers, and tell them the kingdom of God has come near. Well, we know that kingdom of God has already come through his resurrection. He's translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. God has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, which would have to be the kingdom of God. But I want you to see the mindset of the guys that he's handpicked, the 12 and then the 70. I want you to see the mindset of these people at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, at the end of his three years of ministry, with all the miracles, with all the signs, with all the wonders, with all the things he's done. Look at where the disciples are. Let me go back to verse 21 now. It says, from that time forward, starting at that point in time, speaking of the previous event about challenging them and asking them who he was, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised again on the third day. From that time forward, once Jesus asked them, and Peter responds for the group, I'm assuming that, Jesus, that Peter's answer for the group satisfied Jesus that everybody else in the group must feel the same way. But that means that for a period of time, at least six months, probably closer to a year, Jesus has been telling his disciples, his followers, those that were close with him, he's been telling them, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be mistreated by the, the religious leaders, the Jews. I'll be killed. I'll be buried. And I'll rise again the third day. Well, with that in mind, turn back with me to John 14. Verse 5, Thomas says, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? We don't know where you're going. Well, where's Thomas been when Jesus has been telling them plainly and clearly and openly about being crucified and sacrificing his life in Jerusalem? Philip speaks up in John chapter 14, verse 8. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. Now, again, that was Jesus' ministry, purpose in ministry, overriding purpose in ministry, is to reveal the Father's loved toward mankind and his willingness to show his power on their behalf to set them free and to be a blessing. Now, Philip says, if you'll just show us the heavenly father, show us who God is, show us the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then that'll satisfy us. He answers Peter, uh, Philip and says, have I been so long time with you and you don't know who I am? He that has seen me has seen the father. Which, again, substantiates his purpose in ministry, which is to reveal the Father. Now, we know, just as a side note, we know that Thomas shows up again, and his attitude's made clear 
by the events that happened after the resurrection. Just three days after these things that Jesus is saying in John chapter 14. Remember Jesus, John chapter 20 tells us about Jesus appearing in the midst of the, of, uh, the 12. But Thomas isn't there. Jesus breathes on him and says, receive the Holy Ghost, which was the beginning of the church. But Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas says, unless I see the print of the nail in his hand and thrust my hand into his side where that spear had uh, pierced his side. He said, I won't believe. Didn't say he couldn't believe. He said he won't believe. Now, folks, here's the reason why I'm pointing this out and focusing on the disciples a little bit. Every part of the church world that believes that Jesus is the Son of God reveres the 12 as having something special, something unique, either unique in their relationship with Jesus, unique in their call and their purpose here on the earth after the resurrection to preach the gospel and so forth, or some special power that they received on their own. But look at these guys. Three days before Jesus is crucified, or I'm sorry, three days before Jesus is raised from the dead, at the Last Supper, these guys don't have a clue. At least the two of them didn't. At least Thomas or Philip didn't. Not a clue. Now, if Jesus had been plainly teaching them and telling them for six months to a year, a period of time, somewhere around there, we don't know exactly, But if he's been clearly telling them what he's going to do and how he's going to sacrifice himself, why does he have to upbraid them for their unbelief after he is raised from the dead and they don't accept him initially? What have they been doing? Now, during that time, they've been healing the sick. They've been utilizing the name of Jesus, casting out devils and so forth. They've been doing all the works that Jesus wanted them to do. But we certainly can't say that they had an understanding of everything related to Jesus' sacrifice. We certainly can't say that they have an inkling or any kind of clue whatsoever about being placed in Christ as Paul reveals to us in the letters to the church. They didn't know any of that stuff. They didn't know half of what you know. They didn't know a hundredth of what you know about who we are in Christ. But they did the work. Back to John 14. Jesus said, beginning in verse 10, he said, Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father which dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Notice Jesus is crediting God the Father working in him through the anointing of the Holy Ghost and power as being the one that did the works. In other words, Jesus is saying, Sure, they're happening through my hands, but I'm not the one originating this. I'm not doing this because of some power I have in and of myself. I'm not even doing it because I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the power of God through the Holy Ghost that's doing these works, not me. Now, that would have to be true if the Bible is accurate in Philippians 2, where it says Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory. If he's operating here on the earth, healing the sick and casting out devils and performing miracles because he's the son of God. Then that would negate anything and everything that he told us and told his disciples about going and doing the same works in his name. You understand why that has to be true, don't you? If Jesus was operating with power he had before he came to the earth, before he was born of the Virgin Mary 
and came to the earth, then there's no way in the world that he could expect us to use the same power, the same anointing of the Holy Ghost and do the same works. Now that fits real well with a lot of church doctrine. Because if as much of the church world does, the denominational part of the church world at least, if as they believe to be true, Jesus did operate because he was the son of God and had power that we can't have, then that would explain why the church is powerless in many cases against sickness and disease and the work of the devil now. So it's easy to believe that. The problem is it's not what Jesus said. So Jesus said, Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Notice the connection, the association that Jesus makes between the words and the works. The words are not of me, the words are of my Father. And he's the one that's doing the works. Now, unless Jesus misspoke, then the word and the works are connected. As they should be. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe for the very work's sake. Verse 12, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. Now, we know that means healings, miracles, and deliverance, and all the other stuff that he did. Everybody understands that, right? Nobody would argue about what he's talking about. There's a lot of argument in the church about whether or not it belongs to us and whether or not we can do the same things or do what he told us that we would be able to do. But we can't argue. There's no room for argument about what the works were. So he said, he that believeth on me, verse 12, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Because I go unto my Father. Now, folks, again, as we said, Jesus can't be in heaven building houses. Because Jesus said, the one that believes in me will do the same works that I did, have done, and even greater works because I go unto my Father. If the cause of Jesus going to the Father was building mansions in heaven, there's nothing about that that would provide power for you or me or anybody else. But when he's talking about going to his Father, he's talking about having made the way of righteousness available to man. He's talking about having made a position, created a position of right standing for you and me and everybody else to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. He's saying that's going to be the source for you and I to do the same works that he did and even greater works. Now, I'm not sure what greater works are. I know what the works that he did are. The Bible's real clear about defining that. Some people would say, well, we're able to get people saved because Jesus has been raised from the dead and Jesus himself couldn't even do that when he was here on the earth. Okay. If that's what you want to define greater works as, getting people born again, filled with the Holy Ghost or something along that line, I, I'm fine with that. I don't have any basis or foundation to argue that. But remember, Jesus said that we would do the same works that he did, signs and wonders and miracles, healings and deliverance and so forth, and greater works. So we can't, from what Jesus said, we can't just say we live in a better day because now we can get people saved when Jesus couldn't. And then discount the other part of what Jesus said about doing the same works that he did. Healings and, and so forth. Healings, signs, and wonders. Let me back up to verse 12 again. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, 
The works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Notice Jesus is saying the works that we do here on the earth, the same works that he did, and the greater works are to be done through the use of the name of Jesus. Now, the word ask is a difficult word because we think that ask means to, to entreat or in some cases beg, just depending on how serious you are about asking, I guess. But this word ask from the Greek language means demand, to call for or require. Jesus is saying, whatever you call for and require of me in my name, I'll do it. I'll do it. Notice why he does it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Folks, if we accept this at face value, then Jesus is saying all the, the healings that he did, the signs and wonders, the miracles that he performed, all those things that he did to help and bless and benefit mankind were done to glorify the Father God. And he's saying that he'll do the same works through you and me to glorify the Father even further. Turn back with me to Acts chapter 3. Or turn over with me, I guess, to Acts chapter 3. After Jesus is raised from the dead, the Holy Ghost is poured out on the day of Pentecost and the church begins to grow. 3,000 people, I believe it was, got saved on the day of Pentecost through Peter's preaching, saying this is what the prophet Joel prophesied about, the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. He preached a simple message about Jesus being crucified, and now he's raised from the dead. He's alive, is the testimony that he gives, and 3,000 people get saved. It tells us that the church continues to grow, the Lord adding daily to the church such as it should be saved. Now, in Acts chapter 3, we shift gears a little bit to see how the believing and using the name of Jesus worked in the early church. Now, again, I can't emphasize this enough. Most of the time, most of the church world, present-day church world, looks at the apostles, particularly Peter and John, those that were closest to Jesus. They look at them as if they had something that the rest of us don't have or couldn't have because of a special place they had with God. But these guys were not spiritual giants. At least they weren't spiritual giants during Jesus' earthly ministry. Just before the night, the very night that Jesus was betrayed, you've got some of the disciples asking questions that indicate that they had no clue what Jesus was here on the earth to do or why he came doing signs and wonders and miracles. Now, I'm not throwing stones. I take great comfort from that because I think a lot of people have the idea that if we learn enough or grow enough or grow in knowledge enough, then maybe the church will start doing some of these things. But you're going to see even in one of the greatest miracles that were performed in the early days of the church, it wasn't about education. It wasn't about depth of knowledge. It was about a simple willingness to use the name that's been given to the church. Verse chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer being the ninth hour. 
And a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes on him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. And Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was the man that sat at alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were all filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed was held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, You men of Israel, why marvel you at this? Why are you surprised at this? Why does this amaze you? You men of Israel, why marvel you at this? Or why look you so earnestly on us, Peter and John, as though by our own power or a holiness, we had made this man to walk? Now, folks, the wisdom of God's amazing. God knew that what the arguments would be in the day that we live in relative to the use of the name of Jesus and doing the same works that he did here on the earth. As I've said a couple of times this evening already, so much of the church world, I don't know, maybe most, but it's a lot, even if it's not a majority, it's a lot of people who are saved and love God with all of their hearts, who are certainly headed to heaven. But so much of the church world says that the disciples had some special power or some special place of relationship with God that enabled them to do the things that Jesus did, the things that are recorded in the book of Acts. But we can't do that today. We don't have that same power. We don't have that same position of relationship. And that's the very thing that Peter addresses when he says, why are you looking at us in this way? We don't have some special power. We don't have some special holiness that enabled us to use the name of Jesus, that enabled us to to activate the power of God to heal this man who's crippled. Those are the very things that Peter, out of his own mouth, said that it wasn't. But the church, by and large, won't hear that. Well, if it wasn't your own power and if it wasn't your own holiness, Peter, what was it? Verse 13, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son Jesus. Notice that phrase, has glorified his son Jesus. Now, Peter is talking about bringing glory to God the Father through Jesus, using the name of Jesus, relative to and connected to this event of the crippled man being healed. Peter is saying the healing of this crippled man glorifies God. The healing of this crippled man that all of you know, you've known him for years. He sat at this beautiful gate for years asking an alms. More than likely, Jesus passed through this gate and went right by this guy. Maybe several times. But this guy is well enough known among the temple visitors, among the Jews that come into the temple regularly. He's well enough known so that everybody knows that this can't be fake. 
This can't be some setup. Everybody knows that he's been there for years and years. And now they see him walking. So Peter says, the God of our fathers has glorified his son Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. That was Barabbas. And have killed the prince of life, whom God has raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name, notice verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 16. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So Peter says, it's not some special power we have. He says, it's not some special holiness we have. We don't have something special or more of God than you or anybody else can have. It was the name that did the work. Now, again, remember what Jesus said in John 14, 12, 13, and 14, verses 12, 13, and 14. Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also, and greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my Father. If you ask, if you call for, if you require, if you make a demand for anything in my name, I will do it. This is what the demand looks like. This is what calling for and and requiring in the name of Jesus looks like. And again, Peter identifies the very same reason Jesus said that we do the same works. Jesus did the works that he did to glorify the Father He said that a demand on his name would perform the same works, the same results to glorify the Father through him. And that's what Peter says took place through the healing of this crippled man. The Father was glorified in the Son. The Father was glorified in the Son. Now, 5,000 people get saved as a result of this. 5,000 people in one day. The healing of a man that they knew. Someone that they were all familiar with. Caused 5,000 people to get saved in a day. If God used Jesus. To do signs and wonders and miracles. To draw attention to himself. The father God. Remember in uh, John chapter 3. When Nicodemus comes to him in, uh, in the night. Back under cover of darkness. He said Rabbi we know. That you're come from God because no man can do the stuff that you're doing except God be with him. So in Jesus' time here on the earth, God used signs and wonders and miracles to draw followers to Jesus. After Jesus' resurrection and gives his name to the church, the use of that name brings in Certainly supernatural. I think we could even identify it as miraculous harvest. If nothing else, just by sheer size and numbers. When we see that the Bible says there's a last day harvest. When we see that the Bible says that Jesus is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth before he comes back for the church. What are we to assume? What are we to understand? That God will do or wants to do. To bring those people to him. When Jesus was here on the earth. He used healing signs and wonders. When the early church started. He used healing signs and wonders. 
What's he going to use in our day? See, some people will say, well, God's doing a new thing here in these days. What is that even supposed to mean? He's not going to use healing anymore? It looked like it worked pretty good during Jesus' ministry. Looked like it worked pretty good in the beginning days of the church. But no, God's doing a new thing today. Folks, if God's doing a new thing to get today, then that means God has changed. And God can't change. He's going to use the same thing that he always used. The preaching of the gospel and the confirmation of the preaching, the truth of the word, with healing signs and wonders. Why change it? It worked great. And still will. Now, you know as well as I do that that's not the end of this story. After he gets the 5,000 people saved, then the Jewish leaders come and take hold of him. Chapter 4, verse 1 of Acts. And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now evening. Here's where it says the, the many of them which heard the word believed and the number of the men was about 5,000. Those are the ones that got saved from Peter preaching before the Jewish leaders took, took hold of them and put them in prison. And it came to pass on the morrow that the rulers and the elders and the scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were with the, of the kindred of the high priest, family members, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? The Jews knew that no man has power over sickness and disease. No man has power in and of himself to be able to make the lame walk or the blind see or anything like that. So they recognize you have to have been commissioned with something you wouldn't ordinarily have. Or you've got to be operating as a representative in someone else's name to do this kind of work. Now let me stop here long enough to to point out if the modern day church just had as much understanding as the Jewish leaders did when they took Peter and John in prison, the church would be light years ahead of where we are now. If the church understood that there is power available that goes beyond human ability, or there is a name, and or there is a name, whereby men, human beings, ordinary people just like you and me, apparently just like Peter and John, would be in, enabled to do the same kind of healings work, healing works, signs, wonders, and miracles that Jesus did. Too much in the modern day church believes that the power of God is not available to mankind. God can use it. He can do what he wants to whenever he wants to do, but you never know when he's going to do what he does. But even the Jews who did not believe in Jesus recognized that there had to be a source of power somewhere. So he says, by what they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, crippled man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel 
that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. Now notice what he credits it to. He credits the work, the healing, miracle, to the name of Jesus, to the name of Jesus. He said Jesus did it when we put a demand on his name. And notice how he equates the name with him, meaning Jesus. Notice he says they're one and the same. It's the name of Jesus that we used even by him, Jesus himself. Does this man stand here before you whole? Now remember what Jesus said. John 14, verses 13 and 14. He said, if you call for or require or demand anything in my name, I will do it. Peter's saying, Jesus did it. We use the name, Jesus did the work. We put a demand on the name of Jesus, Jesus backed it up. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other name. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That word saved is the word sozo. We've talked about that a number of times. The word sozo, all Bible scholars will agree, is an all-inclusive word that means rescue, deliver, to make safe, to make sound, and to heal. Those are the descriptions given by Schofield, Dr. Schofield in his reference Bible. So it's not a a denominational issue. It's not one denomination's or full gospel people believe one thing about this word that's used and denominational people think something else about it. Everybody agrees. So when Peter says there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved, he's saying the name of Jesus not only redeems us from our sin, The blood of Jesus not only saved us or paid the price for sins. But that same name includes healing and deliverance as well. There is no other name but the name of Jesus. Now notice verse 13. Now when they, talking about the high priest and the group that's gathered to hear them. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John... And perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. They marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. So it wasn't education that got it done. It certainly wasn't a knowledge of who we are in Christ as Paul reveals to us in the letters that he wrote to the church. Because even Peter later in his life in a letter that he wrote to the church said some of the things that Paul Teaches are hard to understand. Well, they weren't hard for Paul to understand because he was an educated man. But Peter and John didn't have the pedigree of education. They were less schooled and therefore would be less skilled in the knowledge of the Old Testament and the law of Moses than the high priests and all the other members of the council that that Peter and John are talking to. They perceived that they were ignorant and unlearned men. They perceived that they were, that Peter and John were ignorant and unlearned men. I love that. That makes a place for you and me, doesn't it? 
Well, let's see what they do. When they perceived that John and Peter were ignorant and unlearned men, they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus and beholding the man which was healed standing with them. They could say nothing against it. The implication is they would have tried to downplay it, but here the guy is that everybody saw that used to be crippled and now he's well. That does mess up a lot of church doctrine, doesn't it? But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed a notable miracle has been done by them, and everybody can see that it's manifest to all that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it, but that it spread no further among the people. Let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. Now, folks, I want you to see how the devil works against the church. This Jewish council with the authority to put Peter and John to death, just like they put Jesus to death some couple of months before. They recognize that what they've got to stop is not Peter and John coming to the temple. They don't say, we've got to make sure that these people that call themselves Christians don't congregate anymore. They didn't outlaw church. They just tried to get them to stop using the name. They perceived, they understood that the name was and is the lifeblood of Christianity. So let's command them not to preach or teach anymore in this name. We don't care if they teach. What do we care if ignorant and unlearned men teach? But they can't use the name. I would submit to you that that's a lot of the place that the modern day church is at. We can talk about Jesus all we want to, but don't use the name. And they called and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it's, be, whether it's right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, you be the judge. Jesus has already commissioned them. Matthew 28, Jesus said, All power, literally authority, has been given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and preach the gospel. In other words, Jesus is saying, Through my resurrection, the defeat of sin and death, I've got authority in heaven and in earth. Now, who is it that has authority here on the earth? I'm not asking for a a religious answer. Because the religious answer is certainly Jesus. But Jesus isn't here anymore. The thing that gives mankind authority here on the earth is a flesh and blood body. And Jesus doesn't have that anymore. Therefore, when Jesus said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth, I'm going back to heaven, you stay on the earth. He's saying, I'll use it where I am, you use it where you are. See, the only way Jesus has authority to operate here on the earth... It's through the church. That's why the church is called the body of Christ here on the earth. Because Jesus does not qualify to exercise authority on this earth. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not discounting the authority that he has. But he set up a system even before he went to the cross. Of how his authority could be utilized 
by the church here. Whatever you call for, require, demand in my name, I'll do it. Thank God for the name of Jesus. Thank God for the name of Jesus. I want you to see one other verse of scripture. And it's in John chapter 8. John chapter 8 is a, another one of those chapters that John gives us insight into that none of the other gospel writers did. He tells us about how that Jesus is preaching to a great multitude and the multitude doesn't understand what he's saying. He talks about eating his flesh, talks about mankind eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which we understand is symbolic for partaking of the sacrifice that Jesus is going to make for sin, sickness, and poverty. But there were many people in that congregation, in that multitude, that thought he was talking about cannibalism, which is forbidden, of course, by the law of Moses, as should be by any society. And so when he won't back up on his statements, when he won't walk them back, the things that he's saying, but rather says, whether you understand it or not, this is how it works. It ends up that many of the disciples and many of the crowd walk no more with Jesus. Verse 28, Jesus said unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am He, the Messiah, in other words, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. And He that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Notice that phrase. We saw another phrase over in John chapter 14 and again in Acts chapter 3. John 14 verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, Whatever you call for or require or make a demand on in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you call for or require anything in my name, I'll do it, he said. So we see that Jesus did works, healings, miracles of healings, signs and wonders and such. We saw that he did those things to glorify the Father. Now Jesus is saying that he always does the things that please his Father. So I want you to connect these two scriptures. I want you to see that glorifying the Father is something that the Father is pleased by. And Jesus said the way that he glorified the Father was through healing signs and miracles. Now, if healings, healing the sick through the use of the name of Jesus, which is the perfect example we have in Acts chapter 3 and 4. If healing the sick through the use of the name of Jesus was the way that we do the same works that Jesus did while he was here on the earth, and those works, healing signs and wonders, please the Father then, if they don't please the Father now, then God had to have changed. What I'm here to tell you, folks, is that the Bible teaches nothing more clearly and more definitively than us, the church, using the name of Jesus to bring deliverance and healing and restoration to people. Nothing pleases him more than that. Jesus said so himself. It seems, however, that so much of the time, 
we have a, an idea, and, and I'm, I understand why we have the idea. It's come through years and decades and maybe even centuries of wrong teaching in the church so that we have to learn and meditate on the word to overcome the idea that the name of Jesus doesn't do the same thing now, doesn't produce the same results now as it did in the book of Acts. But it's undisputed that Jesus wanted us to do the same works and even greater works. It's undisputed that those works glorify the Father through the Son. And it's undisputed that Jesus did these things at his own admission. He did these things in his earthly ministry as a part of the things that he did always to please his Father. The point I'm trying to make is simply this. God wants the name of Jesus to operate in the church more than you and I do. It pleases him. It glorifies him. It is the means. First and foremost, it is the means that Jesus left to us in building his church so that the gates of hell should not be able to hold out against us because it pleases the Father. The use of the name of Jesus is the way to please the Father. The use of the name of Jesus is the way to do the same works and greater works than Jesus did, just like he said that we should. Again, Jesus said, if you call for, require, demand anything in my name, I'll do it. I'll do it. I will do it. Now, does the name of Jesus, does the use of the name of Jesus somehow do away with the qualifications or the requirements that Jesus expected of mankind for those works to be done? Remember in his own hometown of Nazareth in Luke chapter 4 and Mark chapter 6, we have an account of where the city rejected Jesus. They would not believe. It says Jesus could in his own hometown of Nazareth do there no mighty works. He didn't have any blind eyes open. He didn't have any lepers that were cleansed. He didn't have any crippled men that w- or women that walked. He didn't have any of those things. And it says he marveled, Mark 6, 5. He marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. See, the fact that Jesus left us his name doesn't negate the truth that faith is still necessary to activate it. And it can't just be the activation by the faith of the one preaching or making a demand on the name of Jesus because I believe nobody was stronger in faith than Jesus was, were they? Yet in his own own hometown, he couldn't do any mighty work. Well, we can't say that it was because he didn't have enough faith. No, he marveled at their unbelief. It still requires faith of the recipient. Nothing does away with that. But when we can find faith, faith in who Jesus is, faith in what Jesus paid the price for, faith in the truth of the word of God that Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses and with his stripes you were healed. When you can find that measure of faith, it doesn't have to be a lot, But when you can find that measure of faith, Jesus said, whatever you call for requiring my name, I'll back you up. I'll do it. I'll do it. E.W. Kenyon said in his 
book, The Wonderful Name of Jesus. I know there's a lot of bad stuff that's said about Dr. Kenyon. But if you're saved and you read his, his book on the wonderful name of Jesus, there's no way you can come away with anything except an understanding of his love for God. There's a lot of people that are saying a lot of things about him in past times as well as present who haven't taken the time to find out what he really said. They just take somebody else's word for things. But you can't read his book on the wonderful name of Jesus and not, well, you can't read any of his books and not see the great love that he had for God. And he said, Dr. Kenyon said, it seems that in the church world today, we're playing a game of chicken. Churches and preachers and teachers from the pulpit are trying to challenge the people in the pews to do what they're not doing themselves when it comes to using the name of Jesus. I think there's a lot of truth in that. I think there's a lot of us who want to see the use of the name of Jesus for ourselves. And then we've got the idea that then we'll use it. But you can't get any more definitive than what Jesus said. If you call for or require anything in my name, I'll do it. Mark chapter 16, after Jesus was raised from the dead, appeared unto his disciples and said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel, and these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. He mentions authority over the devil, divine protection, and laying hands on the sick and the sick recovering. He said those things would be done in his name. Thank God for the name. There is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. Their sins remitted, their bodies healed, made safe, made sound, and delivered. All in the name of Jesus. I believe in the name of Jesus. How about you? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us your name. The name that's above every name. You said, Lord, that all authority was given unto you in heaven and earth. You then commissioned your disciples to use that authority here on this earthly planet. We know you're taking care of things from heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. And we also recognize, Lord, the importance of us being your body here on the earth. The part that we play gladly, the part that we play in utilizing the power of heaven to set people free. Father, we ask for boldness to speak your word. The kind of boldness that comes from stretching your hand to heal and doing signs and wonders in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Healings and miracles have always been the thing that drew people to the gospel. It's always been the thing that brought people into the family of God. We don't believe you're through with that method yet, Lord. We believe in the name. We believe the name is all-powerful. 
We believe that, Jesus, you still do what we place a demand on in your name. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Say this after me. The name of Jesus belongs to me. When I use that name, all the power of heaven is available to me. When I make a demand on the name of Jesus, Jesus said he'd do whatever we called for. Lord Jesus, we believe you told us the truth. We believe in you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's all stand. Let's lift our hands just before we go. Let's lift our hands and just thank him for his goodness and his mercy. He didn't have to give us a name. He didn't have to give us the greatest name in the universe. But he did so that we would be victorious. So that we could help to set other people free too. Not just for us, but for others as well. Lord, we magnify you. We bless your holy name. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for giving us your name. The all-powerful name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Now, Lord, give us opportunities to use that name. Lead us to people who can be helped, who are willing to believe and receive of the power of God. Direct our paths, Lord. You know who's ready. You know who we can help. So we thank you, Lord. We commit ourselves to you that we'll use boldness. We will be bold in the use of the name. The name that's above every name. We'll do that, Lord. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Say it with me. The name of Jesus belongs to me. Let me stop here long enough to say this before I let you go. Things that belong to you don't take some great faith to use. See, Jesus didn't say, if we believe enough, then maybe the power of God will be on display. He gave us a name. It belongs to you. It belongs to you just as much as the car that you came to church in tonight. Now, you don't go out at the end of the service and stand by your car and pray that somehow the car will work. You use the key to get in and go. Now Peter talked about faith in the name of Jesus. But when we realize that it belongs to us, faith becomes an unconscious act. We're just simply using what he gave us. So it's not something that we need to analyze or scrutinize regarding our faith. We just need to use what he gave us. In this respect... We need to not focus on our faith, but instead focus on the power in the name. Amen? Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. And you're dismissed.